You're listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine, a roundup of this week's leading stories and industry comment from the world of investor relations. Direct from our central London studio, here's your host, Laurie Havelock. This week on the Ticker Podcast, Australian firms go cold on earnings guidance, how strong female leadership leads to better performance, and EY on how relationships make IR. Welcome back to the Ticker Podcast. It's your weekly roundup of the top news from around the world of investor relations. And I'm back this week with Garnet Roach and Condice de Montpetit. Hello. 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 Morning, morning. Well, top of the headlines this week was the news that Mark Zuckerberg has issued some $45 billion worth of Facebook stock in the name of his daughter. Surely shareholders are up in arms, but maybe not. Zuckerberg and his wife, Dr. Priscilla Chan, have donated 99% of their Facebook stock to a new charity venture called the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. Uh, this new entity will be given the remit to join people across the world to advance human potential and promote equality for all children in the next generation. Sounds pretty you know, doable, really. Um, Zuckerberg and Chan announced this on their own social networking site alongside the first photos of their newborn daughter. To Max, uh, in whose name the charity has been started. They also cite the good example of Bill and Melinda Gates um, and their charitable work as an inspiration. But there was an awful lot of vitriol around. Uh, many slammed the move as an act of vanity or even business savvy. Uh, one New York Times author suggested that with the new 45 billion company as a LLC, you'll be able to make political donations, lobby government, and serve as a nice tax break for Mr. Zuckerberg and his wife. And also maybe hire an IRO. Well, <laughs> hopefully. I mean, that's what I was going to lead on to. Do you reckon we'll see a Zuckerberg Chan initiative? taking off, you know, having a whole IR team, winning IR magazine awards. Never know. Watch this space, guys. But I thought that's what they, you know, people are saying that it's it's a cynical move for a tax break. Isn't that what tax breaks are for? They're to foster, you know, it's still $45 billion of money going towards charity. I think it's a good, good thing. I think any, you know, anyone that wants to, to do something to help and to make the world a better place, mm. you can't argue with that. You can't, you know, who cares if they get 15 billion back out of 45 billion? I mean, who cares? They've got loads of money. It's not, you know, yeah, they're giving, there's no shortage. <laughs> they're still giving loads of money. So people maybe get too, too caught up on, you know, if there's a money making commerce venture to be had. But anyway, um, on from the potentially shaky leadership of Mr. Zuckerberg, then and onto the strong leadership of women and particularly um, some findings from a new survey, which Condice has looked a bit deeper into. Yes. MSCI has revealed that uh, over the last six years, companies in their world index that have strong female leadership outperform other firms by 36% in terms of uh, return on equity. And as a reminder, the the World Index is made of um, a selection of uh, large and mid-cap stocks from 23 developed countries. And what do they call strong female leadership in the survey? Well, it's having either three women or more on the board, a female CEO, or more women than the average in a company's home country. So the study shows that uh, those companies scored an average return on on equity of 10.1% over the last six years, while those without strong female leadership had an average of 7.9%. The study also shows that companies ranking in the bottom quarter in terms of gender board diversity suffered 24% more governance-related controversies than average uh, between 2012 and 2015. The authors say it can't be clearly established why companies with stronger female leadership might perform better. However, quote, academic research in management and social psychology has long shown that groups with more diverse composition tended to be more innovative and um, made better decisions. Has the level of female leadership been increasing recently then? Yes, it has. Um, On the the MSCI World Index, women uh, account for 18.1% of all directors. So that's up almost 16% year on year, compared with a 12.4 increase for the uh, 4,000-plus companies covered in the study, uh, where the women directors average is 15%. And how close are we to that that much-vaunted 30% goal advocated by some lobbies or investors? 
Well, at the current trend, um, it's unlikely we'll have 30% of women in leadership positions before 2027. At the moment, uh, women are appointed to only 16% of new board seats, and uh, the rate is rising by just 1.5 points a year. If the rate doubles, the 30% goal should be attained in 2022, and also just increasing yearly board turnover rates uh, from the current 7.9% to 10% could also ensure we hit the goal by 2020. It's interesting to hear that those companies with high level of strong female leadership, it's, it's more innovative and there are more kind of creative ideas going around, almost suggesting that if you have different kinds of people in the same, in the same board, you'll get a, a broader range of ideas, right? It seems so simple, but maybe companies are a bit slow to wake up to that idea. Yeah, I think if you that's always the way, isn't it? If you if you you're all thinking alike, you're not going to be as creative and if maybe you're bringing some people with some new ideas and mm. maybe a different perspective on things, you might just increase your return on equity, you never know. But did you know that the the founder of the 30% club, um Helena Morrissey, actually had nine children? Really? What was the the female to male ratio of nine <laughs> children? That's what I want to know. I don't know that, but I, I do know that um, I read in, in a, an article, in the, I think in, in the Telegraph, that her husband is, is a stay-at-home dad. Living the dream, then. I was going to say, well, <laughs> she, could, she could definitely set up her own little corporate board with her nine underlings. I think that would go very well. <laughs> well, from a company's overall success to the success of an IR department, and there ha- I've been looking a little bit closer at some research that IR Magazine has carried out alongside EY. The report is called Taking It to Heart, Exploring How Investor Relations is Organized in Companies Pre- and Post-IPO. And it asks respondents questions about the structure of their IR function, the relationships of the board and other corporate departments, um, and what aspects of IR are most crucial to its own success. Almost 9 in 10 respondents, around 88%, say that an ability to build strong relationships with investors and analysts is one of the three most important factors to an IR team working well. And that's followed shortly by the strength of the executive team, according to 68%, while another 45% pick out giving IRC to the top table as being critical. Uh, EY and IR Magazine questioned just shy of 900 IR professionals. We were largely from the Americas and EMEA regions, uh, but there are some Asia-Pacific respondents too at companies at a range of cap sizes. Another third of these respondents say that their team's success hinges on finance department's ability to provide timely, accurate financial reports. Uh, Good forecasting is picked out by 29%, and a fifth say that IR's hand in helping drive value is important too. The report also explores what role IR plays at respondents' companies and how the function is supported by manuals, strategies and the like. A deeper look at this is available in the report itself. Do read it. Uh, But another area which I found interesting was an examination of how well-connected IR teams are, particularly internally. Unsurprisingly, perhaps, 97% of IR teams say they have regular contact with accounting and finance departments. I mean, I wonder what the other 3% are doing, really. Uh, While 84% keep in touch with corporate communications regularly. This is followed by corporate finance, 75%, and then budgeting and forecasting, which is 72% of respondents. U.S. departments are the most likely to be in regular contact with marketing, sales, and operations departments, while EMEA respondents were the most likely to keep tabs on risk and compliant management. Interesting, particularly when you know, you're considering all the new regulations coming in, the EU-wide directives going ahead. Uh, respondents were also asked to gauge how important they thought contact with various departments was. On a scale of zero, not important, to ten, extremely important. Again, accounting and finance came out on top with an average score of 9.3. Uh, 74% of respondents actually rated it at perfect 10. 
Planning, budgeting and forecasting was the next most important touchstone, with a score of 9.1 on average, while the least important departments were considered to be HR, only 6.3 out of 10, and marketing, which had an average score of 7.4. I provide for some interesting reading, particularly for companies considering the structure and practice of their IR teams, particularly again around a pre- or post-IPO period. To find out more, you can check out the report on EY's website. I'll put a link in the show description on SoundCloud. Um, or you can read Garnet's excellent article on irmagazine.com, which went up last week. But one tip, which definitely isn't in the report, is to scrap your earnings guidance entirely. Garnet, this is a story you've been looking a bit more in Australia. Is that right? Yeah, so apparently um, Australian firms are shying away from earnings guidance. Um, a study by corporate advisory firm McGrath Nickel has revealed that the number of ASX-listed companies offering earnings guidance has dropped 10 percentage points in just two years. Fewer than half, uh, 49% of companies on the exchange, offered guidance in 2015, um, according to the study of 104 companies across seven sectors. This is down from 57% last year and 59% in 2013. What do McGrath Nichols say is the reason for this drop? Well, the study authors talk about the, uh, the threat of class action suits from investors saying that they've been misled by such forecasts and also write, quote, the decline in disclosure rates over the past three years suggests companies are becoming more prudent in providing information to the market as a result of increased investor scrutiny, regulatory oversight and litigation consequences if guidance proves to be wrong. The study highlights some recent examples of this too. Spotless, a cleaning and catering contractor, saw its share price plunge by more than 40% on December the 2nd after it issued a profit warning 18 months after it went public. And just days earlier, shares of electronic retailer Dick Smith fell by a third following its own profit warning. Are there any companies which might be bucking that trend? Well, the McGrath-Nickel study looks at earning guidance across a number of different sectors and say that earnings guidance is most popular in the building product sector, where 69% of companies offered financial forecasts this year, though this is still down from 77% in 2014. Other sectors such as transport and distribution and retail have seen quite dramatic cutbacks in the number of companies offering guidance. So in transport and distribution, the proportion of companies offering guidance fell to just 27% from 64% last year, while in the retail sector, this dropped to just 20% from 47% last year. Media and leisure rounds out a trio of sectors where few companies offer guidance now, um, just 23% in 2015. This is not such a big drop um, when just 31% offered guidance in 2014. Only in the construction sector have companies increased guidance output, rising from 55% of firms last year to 65% this year. And what about investors who are concerned about earnings estimates? Are they still right to you know, be worried about what companies are putting out there? Well, it seems actually that um, McGrath Nickel was surprised by its findings around the accuracy of guidance um, that has been issued over the year. They say, quote, with fewer companies issuing guidance in 2015, we would expect to see a greater proportion of those companies providing guidance getting it right. However, the proportion of those companies that either met or exceeded guidance in 2015 was 64%, which is actually down five percentage points from 2014. I wonder if there's something about uh, those few sectors you mentioned where earnings forecasts continue to be quite correct. You know, is there something that the predictability of the building goods sector or something that makes it more liable to easy to predict? Yeah, I would imagine so. I mean, retail and also media and leisure seem like sectors where there might be quite a few changes over the course Mm. of the year. So disruptive technologies and the like. Yeah, it's interesting, and maybe it will be part of a wider trend around the world. We will, we will watch that space. We will. But anyway, I think we have just run out of time. So thank you, Garnet and Condice, for joining us again this week. 
Thank you, Laura. We will, of course, be back with Tim, who's been missing for a couple of weeks. We've been enjoying a, a period of strong female leadership, I think, to quote Condi. 66%. 66%. 66.67. Yeah, well, who, who knows? <laughs> to be exact. <laughs> <laughs> who knows how our financial performance will carry on afterwards, but I can't imagine it will be good <laughs> with us a swing in the male balance again. But um, we will see you next time. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine. For free access to all the latest global investor relations news and analysis, register at irmagazine.com or download the app.